Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. We are diving into the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, show of hands, who's been here for the last two weeks? So, you know, half and half. So we started off with Andrew introducing us to 1 Thessalonians. Last week we had Pastor Bron and Trish take us through into chapter 2. Today we're working on Thessalonians 2 verse 17 to 3 verse 13, which seems like a, you know, weird combination of verses, but when you look it breaks down quite well. Now, for those who were here for the first two weeks, you get a little bit of revision time. For those who weren't here for the last two weeks, we're going to do a little bit of background before we dive in. So Thessalonica was a city. It was the capital of Macedonia, which is what we would know as Greece or a part of Greece. So it had a strong Greek influence. So Greeks, the ancient Greeks particularly, were known for being philosophers, ponderers, thinkers. They were polytheists. They believed in many gods. Thessalonica, as well as being on the port, so on the ocean, was on one of the major Roman highways at the time. So it had a very strong Roman influence under the Roman Empire. The Romans were also polytheists. They believed in many gods. The Romans were worldly. They were progressive. You would call them the elite of the day. Thessalonica also had lots of pagans, and it had a strong Jewish community. And as a city, by first century standards, Thessalonica was probably about as modern and prosperous as it got. In many ways, it's not that dissimilar to 21st century Australia. So Paul travels to Thessalonica with his mate Silas. And if you want to know the details about what happens here, read Acts chapter 17, because it describes those events. He was there for less than a month. He started the Thessalonian church, and the church took off straight away. Paul said that he formed a deep bond with the Thessalonians, and he describes his love for them like love for family members. And the Thessalonian church is formed of this mixed bag of Jews, Greeks, Romans, pagans, and prominent women. And you've got these people from all different backgrounds and all different spiritual heritage that form this early church in Thessalonica. You've got the Jewish people who know the law back to front. They've been raised to follow God's way, but they run the risk of being legalistic. You've got the polytheists, these hyper-spiritual people who are open to everything, They live this incredibly permissive life with this liberal philosophy, and it's to that mentality that Paul says, everything is permissible, not everything is beneficial. You've got the Greeks who are the academics, the thinkers, the philosophers, and what I love is that Paul is actually able to go head-to-head with these Greek philosophers and reason his theology with them and convince many of them. And then you've got the Romans who are the first century world leaders of the time, The Romans had the greatest technology of the day, even down to an ancient flushing toilet system. They were the elite of society. They were wealthy. They were important. They're an incredibly hard group to minister to because from their point of view, what do they need saving from? And as you look at all the subcultures of the Thessalonian church, you can see that Thessalonica draws so many parallels with the church in Australia today. Like the Thessalonians, now don't take this the wrong way, but like the Thessalonians, we're a hodgepodge mix of people from all different backgrounds and all different walks of life. Like the Church of Thessalonica, we're a collective. (laughs) We even call ourselves the Chapel Collective. We've got those who've been in church from birth and know their Bible back to front, who've been raised to always behave a certain way and follow God's commandments, who can spend so much time focusing on how God wants us to live that we can sometimes forget grace. We can be so busy, like Martha, doing all the things for Jesus that we forget to be like Mary and simply be in his presence. 
We've got the totally new believers who are experiencing it all for the first time. And may we never forget the excitement and the delight and the wonder of that first encounter with the Holy Spirit. Now, in this service particularly, we've got the people who are the philosophers, the ponderers, the thinkers, those who love the going deeper section of our 8.30 service. I can relate to that. Um, I love to engage my mind with the Word of God and build an understanding of the Bible that goes deeper than my fluctuating emotions. And I'm so grateful that there are Christian apologists in the world who can stand toe-to-toe with men like Richard Dawkins and speak with boldness and logic and argue the cause of Christ. But I'm also aware that in my own life, I can be at risk of over-academicizing my faith and engaging my head, but not engaging my heart. You know, I could give so many more examples, but you get the idea. The Thessalonian church is diverse, somewhat like the 8.30 service at the chapel. There's not really any one demographic you could use to describe it. But despite, or maybe even because of this diversity, the church in Thessalonica is an instant success. So much so that it makes the local authorities threatened. And the new Christians there are accused of defying Caesar by saying that Jesus is king. And we see early on in Thessalonica that following Jesus comes at a cost. Riots start in the city and the church is so badly persecuted that Paul and Silas are forced to flee. And it's on this backdrop that Paul writes the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's probably the first book he ever wrote. It's written somewhere between AD 50 and AD 52. And Paul is checking in on the Thessalonians after he's been forced to leave them. He celebrates their faithfulness and rejoices that they're holding strong as a church despite persecution. He prays for endurance and for them to hold fast. And he challenges them to keep growing in their faith and keep living for Jesus. And he encourages them to hold on for the hope of Jesus' return. Now, before we dive into this passage, I want to make a side note here. Paul talks about his longing to see the Thessalonians, about his love for them and how he continually prays for them, even though he can't be with them. He didn't even have Zoom. Likewise, COVID and border closures have kept us apart from many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Can we all follow Paul's example and remember those that we love and support from afar? May troubles at home and border closures and our own issues not blinker us or distract us from our brothers and sisters who are at the coalface of missions overseas. May we continue to support and pray for them. Now, before we dive into the actual portion of scripture today, I want to take a moment to look at the global church in the year AD 50. We know that within 15 years of Jesus' death, Churches were thriving all throughout the Roman Empire, against all odds and against persecution. In fact, the rise of Christianity had come to the attention of the Roman Emperor Claudius at the time in the AD 40s. He is said to have called Christianity a disturbance. Persecution of Christians started in the AD 40s and escalated through into the AD 60s under the Emperor Nero. Some of you might be familiar with Emperor Nero, who was infamous for torturing Christians for fun. And what started as intolerance escalated to full-blown persecution that would last for another 250 years. But despite this, the early church did not die out. It did not hide away. It did not diminish. Against all odds, it actually grew exponentially. So what was it about the early church that made it thrive when, by all outward assessment, it should have died out? Like most of Paul's letters, 1 Thessalonians falls within this time of persecution. So remember that before he was converted, before he became a Christian, Paul actually himself was responsible for persecuting Christians. And so it's in the context of this persecution that Paul's words carry so much weight when he says in Romans, bless those who persecute you. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. 
If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And Paul's words there are almost a direct echo of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. So now we're we're diving in now. We've got our background on the Thessalonians. And the portion we're looking at today in chapters 2 and 3 can be broken down into three main points. All the ACC preachers in the room say, breathe a sigh of relief, there's three points. In fact, you only have to remember four words today. Hold fast. Hold together. Hold on. So first, hold fast. We are living in a world that is becoming more and more like first century Thessalonica. Not so much in technology, but in culture. And the words that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians are so applicable to us as a church today. In the context of their persecution, Paul says to the Thessalonians, no one should be unsettled by these trials, for you know that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And Paul was overjoyed to hear that despite their persecution, They were standing firm in the Lord. Now, I'm not about to say that the church in Australia is persecuted. In fact, I think that would be horribly offensive to the underground churches in parts of the world where there is persecution. However, over the last 50 years in Australia, and indeed most of the Western world, we are experiencing a huge shift in society's perception of the value of religion in general and Christianity in particular. In 2017, there was an Ipsos poll that was released. It surveyed 20 nations about their views of religion. Australia came out as one one of the least Christianised countries in the Western world, and 63% of people believe that religion does more harm than good in Australia. Once upon a time, the worst someone might accuse a Christian of was being a do-gooder, a holier-than-thou. But in our current age, Christians are painted with this reputation for being judgmental and bigoted. Now, I'm not here to start a debate about the failings of the church as an institution, but when I spend time with God's people, that depiction of judgmental bigots doesn't fly. What I see are warm, loving people who may not always get it right, but strive every day to serve and love one another. And regardless of whether it's true or not, the fact is the reputation of the church is undergoing a huge shift in our culture. And Paul's teaching to the Thessalonians might have more relevance to us than we realise. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians echoes Jesus' teaching on the Sermon of the Mount when Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus said in John 15, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now, I'm not saying all of this so that you all go home and cry at the state of the world at the end of today. But rather, can we be prepared for what the coming years will require of us? To have a Christian faith is no longer the norm in our society. 50 years ago, if you just followed the cultural expectations of the day, you probably end up in church most weeks. But now that Christian faith is no longer the default, you have to be intentional about it. We have to opt in. But maybe, just maybe, that makes us stronger. Because those who are here actually want to be here. Those who are here are dedicated, intentional, passionate, And like the Thessalonians, we are called to hold fast and stand firm in our faith in a culture that would draw us away. As it says in 3 verse 13, may he strengthen your heart so that you will be holy and blameless. So point number one, hold fast. Number two, hold together. 
Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 10, we pray that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. He then says in verse 12, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. And here in these verses, Paul's introducing this interesting concept that forms one of the cornerstones of church life, which is when we meet together, we build each other's faith. Now, if you haven't been in the 10 a.m. service for the last two weeks, definitely listen to the podcast because Pastor Bron's given a rock-solid message both times about why church. You know, we live in this age where we value our space, our independence. Church is now available online. Small talk makes us uncomfortable. Why should we keep meeting together? Because when we meet together, we build each other's faith. The National Academics of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, the NASM, released a report in 2020 with some disturbing facts. It found more than a third of adults 40, age 45 or over are lonely. A quarter of adults over 65 are considered to be socially isolated. And social isolation significantly increases a person's risk of premature death from all causes. Social isolation is associated with a 50% increased risk of dementia, plus higher rates of depression, anxiety and suicide. Now, there is so much more data supporting this, but you get the idea. And I love how again and again, science is finally catching up with what God has been telling us for millennia, that we are designed to live in community. And when we meet together, we build each other's faith. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 7 says, In all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. And here Paul is painting this image of the church at its best, even in the midst of persecution. He, God uses his church to strengthen each other's faith, and he encourages us not to give up meeting together. Paul goes on to unpack this principle later in the book. In chapter 5, we see him tell us to put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, many of you will actually recognize this analogy as the armor of God in Ephesians. Ephesians was written some 10 years after 1 Thessalonians, but the analogy is definitely there. It's just not fully padded out yet. Now, I'm going to circle back to this armor metaphor. But as a segue, it took Paul at least 10 years to refine that armor of God metaphor from Ephesians, a metaphor that is one of the best known passages of scripture. I want to say that often God puts a powerful vision on your heart years before you see it come to fruition. And I want to encourage you that God's timeline doesn't always match our timeline. God can put a vision in your heart for something that won't be realized for years, but it doesn't mean he's forgotten and it doesn't mean his timing's off. In the meantime, we have to be patient and just keep being faithful with what he's given us and called us to in that day. I want to give the example of my husband, Andrew, um, and honor him in this moment because Andrew was 18 when he first had a word put on his heart that one day he'd work in ministry. He didn't know how or when or the, any of the specifics, but he had a word on his heart that he would work in ministry one day. Now, when we were engaged, six years later, he was 24, and he came up to me one day and he said, hey, babe, enrolled in Bible study today. Um, he didn't say it exactly like that, but, you know, came up and told me he'd enrolled in Bible college. He had no idea how, when, or even if that would be used, but enrolling in Bible college was his act of obedience and faithfulness in response to the vision that God had put on his heart that one day he'd work in ministry. It was 10 years after enrolling in Bible college and 16 years after having that word over his life that he's finally started stepping into working in ministry, having you know, been faithful along the way. So I want to make, take a moment to honour him for being faithful in that season of waiting for 16 years. 
and encourage people that waiting doesn't mean God's forgotten. Waiting doesn't mean God's not in it. Paul waited for 10 years to pad out that metaphor of the armour of God. That message took 10 years to develop, but I want to now circle back to that message of the armour of God. In Paul's description of the armour of God, he talks about the shield of faith. Now, when we picture the shield of faith, I don't know about you, but I often picture this lone soldier battling it out on their own, hoping that they're as strong as Captain America. But in Roman times, which is when this was written, that's not how a shield was used. A shield was routinely used in formation, like the picture on the right. So that those who were struggling, weak or wounded would be placed at the centre of the formation. Those who were strong and able-bodied would stack their shields together to protect the entire division. And it was in this formation the group would actually be able to advance on their enemy. And the shield would not be a weapon of defence, but a weapon of attack. And so in our life, our shield of faith works best when we stack it with the shields of other believers. So that those who are strong and able-bodied would surround those who are weak or wounded and together cover them in their shields to protect them. Then we will not only withstand the arrows of the enemy, but we will be in a position of strength to advance and to take ground. I'm going to make probably my most important point today. So if you are listening to the podcast, hit pause, go get a pen and paper and write this down. If you are in a position where you feel isolated, or if you're isolating yourself, have a care. Because the most dangerous place you can be in your faith is alone. To quote quote Linnea, isolation is the enemy of transformation. And sometimes it can actually take a monumental effort to put yourself out there, to take that first step, to put yourself back into community, especially if you've been burned or hurt in the past. But isolation is a dangerous, dangerous thing, with the exception of if you have COVID, then you should isolate. (laughs) But if you're in a position where you're isolated, or perhaps you're isolating yourself out of what you think is self-preservation, Sound the alarm, get yourself out of that situation now because isolation is a major red flag in faith. Wisdom would recognise that as much as we who are members of the church are fallen, fallible, we make mistakes, we get it wrong, we work better when we're together. And just another note on that point. We all receive enough judgement in the world, let's leave it at the door. Let's Let's be the church that champions one another. Let's be the church that encourages one another and speaks life over one another. Jesus actually chastised people who were so fixated on getting the speck out of their brother's eye that they missed the log in their own eye. Our fellow believers don't need us to fix them. They need us to encourage them. I want to quote our senior pastor, Daz, when he said that the world needs our unity more than it needs our opinion. So let's leave justice and judgment up to God and simply encourage one another and build each other up, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. So let's hold fast, let's hold together, and finally let's hold on hold on until the end. Throughout 1 Thessalonians, Paul just keeps coming back and back and back to the hope of Jesus' return. He says, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? That's the Thessalonians. Indeed, you are our glory and joy. And it echoes what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, that we should run in such a way as to get the prize. 1 Thessalonians is all about keeping perspective. That at the end of your life, at the end of all, your glory was not found in the job you had, the money you made, the title that you had. As Paul says in 2 verse 6, we were not looking for praise from people. At the end of our days, our glory is going to be found in the testimony of the lives we impacted, in the way we loved God and loved God's people. We started today asking a question. 
that despite all persecution and against all odds, the early church didn't die out. It flourished and it grew. How did that happen? Well, the power of Jesus, obviously. Congratulations, we all passed Sunday school. But let's go a little deeper. So on the surface and from outward appearance, the early church looked like the losers. But they didn't behave like that. They behaved like the winners. They didn't look at the earthly circumstances for their hope. They held on to the victory that had already been won in Christ. Now, John Dixon is a Christian historian and writer, and he puts it so much better than I ever could. So I'm going to just read out a passage from him. The ancient Christians were not timid. They did not adopt a posture of peaceful resistance through a kind of slave mentality of the bullied. We might call that victim mentality. Nor was their religion an opiate that dulled them to social realities. It is clear that they actually felt like they were the victors. They believed that true power to change the world lay not in politics or in the military, but in the message of Christ's death and resurrection. Despite persecution, the early church behaved as if they had already won. And their role was simply to remain true to the way of Christ, seeking to transform the world through prayer, service, persuasion, and suffering. The world would have looked at the church in Thessalonica and called them weak, oppressed, and struggling. By all worldly assessment, they were losing the battle. Yet they behaved like winners. And Paul, in fact, calls them a model to all believers. They embodied Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1.27 that God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And this is the message of 1 Thessalonians. Hold on in the insurance that no matter how awful the battle, we know the end result. The end result is victory in Jesus Christ. We just have to hold on until the end. We are living in very strange times. Now, are there any 90-plus members of the service today? So if you're 100 years old, you may not think that the times we live in seem strange. But for the majority of us, these are strange and uncertain times. People are more isolated than they've ever been. People are more confused than they've ever been. There is more uncertainty in the world now than we have known for generations. There's a war in Europe. We've had record-breaking droughts, now record-breaking floods. People are experiencing a crisis of identity. And as much as it would like to silence us, the world needs the church now more than ever. Now, I don't say all of these things to make you miserable, but I say them so that we recognise that the world is searching for hope. We have hope. Our hope is not in the worldly circumstances. Our hope is in Christ. And the Thessalonians realised this. So, church, it's time for us to step up. It's time for the church not just to be a nice cultural influence or a quiet, dismissive bystander. Our world is full of darkness, and we as the church are called to be the light on the hill shining into that darkness. What Paul described in 1 Thessalonians is the founding ethos of the church and all that it was called to be. That we love all, even our enemies, because we are all loved by God. That we live in unity with one another, and that the victory is already ours despite our circumstances, and that victory is found in the resurrection of Christ and the hope of his return. That's the message that's contagious. That's the message that spread across the world and grew exponentially despite all attempts to silence it. And with that conviction, church, let's hold fast, hold together, hold on. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, 
head over to thechapelcollective.com.au. And thanks again for listening.